HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello there, Greenhorns. This is Greenhorns Radio. My name is Severin. I'm your host today for yet another episode of what has become quite a popular little radio show. And I am happy to be in the Hudson Valley. Um, we just had the Young Farmers Conference at Stone Barns, and it was just totally oversold by, I think, 50% oversold. And all sorts of people were sneaking in. And Kathleen Merrigan, the Deputy Secretary of Agriculture, was there and um, made mention of how totally impressed she was by the energy, enthusiasm, and entrepreneurial spirit of the Young Farmers. Um, we had wonderful policy discussions. We had wonderful sessions on farm hacking and all sorts of topics. Um, Creek Iverson led one on, you know, how to run a meeting at your farm. It was super-duper wonderful. And um, many of us get to see each other at these things, and we going into the winter totally jamming. Um, another recently jamming thing was meeting Amber. And so Amber is on the radio today. Amber Reed, how are you? I'm good. <laughs> I'm um, glad you're good. I'm in Leadville right now, so, you know, it's a snowy place, 10,000 feet in Colorado. Um, so so I met Amber at the Kivera Co- Coalition Conference in Albuquerque, and we were both on a panel about young agrarians, and she was there um, talking about her experience working um, as a rancher, ranch hand and as a dairy maiden or a dairy, dairy technician. Um, Amber, will you give everybody a little background on your um, your history in agriculture? Sure. Um, well, let's see. I was actually a teacher for a while um, after college, and I but I worked on farms all the way through college in Maine, which is where I'm from. And um, and I had been in Colorado for a couple of years when I saw this ad basically for um, an apprentice at this organic ranch down in the San Luis Valley, which is huge arid valley in the southern end of Colorado and I applied and I ended up working there um, for a year and doing everything from oh feeding cows hay to moving fence to um, rounding up cows on the range and um, and making a website and doing the farmers market so it was a pretty exciting year uh, and then the 
after that, I ended up on the James Ranch in, in uh, Durango, so the southwestern corner of Colorado, and there I made cheese and uh, milk cows, um, so raw milk cheese, that kind of stuff. So this, so this essentially has been your now second year as a full-time farmer. Um, this last season you just got done at the James Ranch, and now you're spending the winter. What are you doing? Well, I'm basically I'm, I'm uh, uh, waitressing in a yurt in, um, at about 10,500 feet up here in uh, Leadville. And then in the spring I'm returning to Maine to hopefully um, milk cows again and work on a dairy there. So that's my plan. Um, so I'm not actually a farmer right now, um, which is well. Far, I think hard what sometimes. you're doing is doing an off-farm winter job, which is very sensible, which is a very good thing to do. If those of you who are between farm jobs, um, most of you will probably be able to relate to that as a very useful <laughs> way to spend the winter. Yeah. Will yeah. you explain a little bit how fun. the James Ranch was set up and what you were doing there? Sure. Um, there was basically three of us involved with the dairy. Um, there was um, Dan, who um, owns the dairy, and he is sort of the full-time cheesemaker and the business guy. And then Martine is the full-time milker. And then basically what I was was the half cheesemaker, half milker. So I spent about half my time um, making cheese and the other half milking. Um, and it was all it was a seasonal dairy, so... Like I said, we just got finished a couple weeks ago, and um, we just milk when there's green grass, basically. And we make cheese with six days of, a week of the milk. And then one day a week, the milk goes to herd share, and people pick up their herd share because Colorado is, um, oh, it's a pretty um, difficult state as far as raw dairy goes. So you have to have the herd share programs, and, you know, it's, it's a little touchy with, um, you know, people being able to get the kind of things that they want. And were you particularly moved to be in Colorado, or were you moved to work with raw milk, or what was your kind of core motivation for for getting involved um, with that with that apprenticeship? Or was it officially an apprenticeship, or were you an employee? Um, no, it was officially an apprenticeship, and it was also through the Kavira Coalition, which is um, like the apprenticeship on the ranch that I had. So. Um, and basically, I mean, I love dairy cows, and I love to milk cows, and... Um, and I actually made cheese and milk goats in France like 12 years ago and have been sort of itching to do it ever since. And um, it was really perfect for me because I um, – it's kind of like uh, the marriage of art and science, which is kind of what I studied in college. And I feel like, you know, you have the whole – you know, grazing, grazing management aspect in the cow part, so, and then, which is like the science end, and then you have the cheese making, which is kind of the art end, with a lot of science, obviously, <laughs> mixed in there, too, with all the bacteria cultures and enzymes and all that kind of stuff. But, um, no, this is really exactly what I want to do. Um, and I, I love Colorado, and it's really interesting to have spent so much time here, being from the East Coast, from a wet place. And then coming out here to this brutal environment where things are so different. Um, and I, you know, I'm really excited to go back to the East. But there was a lot to be learned out here about water. Um, it's a lot harder in some ways. Um, I was out there and I visited Amber on her um, ranch where she was working at the James Ranch in Durango. And um, there's a huge, massive river um, flowing through the property. 
And you told me this amazing, startling fact about the water right. Will you tell everybody about that? Um, sure. Uh, well, when I first came out here, I, well, I couldn't quite understand water law because it's, it's very complicated and it doesn't really make sense to me coming from Maine, which is so wet. But, um, you know, there's all sorts of rules about, you know, everyone has, you know, who has the first right on um, a water source, the second, the third. I mean, there could be 50 different people in line for this source of water, and, and everyone gets a certain amount, and it's very closely regulated. And the place where I worked, they had a um, piece of land with a very old water right. In fact, I think they were, like, number one or number two. And basically, if they had a terrible drought year, they could divert the entire Animus River um, to irrigate their farm, which they've never done and never needed to do, and I don't even know if they would do it if they had to, but um, but by law, um, they could divert the entire river, which just seems crazy. Um, and, you know, it's not like a huge river, not like the Ohio River or something, but, um, but you know, pretty substantial. <laughs> yeah, I, I was totally floored <laughs> by that, and, and I'm just sitting here looking out over the Hudson River right now, um, which is, you know, so polluted that we don't dare, hardly dare even swim in it. And out there the yeah. water was so pure and so good and, um, and so precious. It's a, it's a funny thing, the difference um, on the different coasts and in the arid intermountain west. Um, let's, talk about land, let's talk about land access. Um, obviously oh. there's more land um, available in arid places, and it takes more land to have a, um, a livelihood when that land is not as well watered. Um, mm-hmm. What are your kind of land hopes for when, for when you have your own farm? Well, I mean, I'm hoping, um, like I think most people, um, most young farmers, to have land that's uh, far enough outside of a city so that's affordable and close enough to a, a population area that you have a market for your um, products. Um, but, you know, I'm, you know, one thing that really interests me, and maybe this is from, you know, my sort of history before I moved to Maine, I was from West Virginia. My family were um, historically coal miners, and um, and I'm really interested in land reclamation, and that's something I've also been interested in out, being out west, is, you know, you see a lot of degraded land pe- from people either who are poor land management managers or they've destroyed it in some way by mining it or, oh, who knows? I mean, there's a million ways to destroy land. Um, but anyway, so for me, I have this big interest in, um, you know, maybe getting a piece of degraded land and, and, and improving it, basically, and bringing it back to life. And I, you know, maybe it's like, you know, kind of like the American thing where everyone loves, like, the before and after shot of whatever, the house, the car, um, the, like, athlete, whatever it is. And I just, um, you know, I would love to get a piece of clear-cut land in Maine and, and bring it back to life. Um, and make it a place that, you know, wildlife wants to be and, and hopefully my cows want to be and where I'm sequestering carbon and I have lots of earthworms. And um, to me, that's really exciting. And, um, and as far as out west goes, um, you know, there's definitely land available out here. Of course, you know, knowing what I know about water law now, you know, it's so important to get a piece of land that basically has a water right that's... Mm, good enough to get you water when there's a drought, um, and that's kind of hard to come by in some places. 
um, but not impossible, you know, depending on, on where you are and what state. New Mexico maybe has some more available stuff than Colorado these days. Um, so anyway, that's my land degradation thing. I mean, um, Severin didn't really mention at the at the conference we were at, there was a lot of talk about dirt, which was really exciting um, and improving, you know, improving your soil and, and um, you know, improving your microbes and, and fighting climate change with carbon sequestration. And I thought that was just awesome. And um, so anyways, um, that's been making me think a lot about this kind of stuff. Well, and it's so great how, um, you know, this, this troublesome, this troublesome fact um, that so many young farmers face, um, that land is expensive and land is, you know, hard to access and it's complicated and it's costly and it takes a lot of time and, and thought and planning and commitment and, um, you know, it's like a personal problem, land, but it also turns out that it's a kind of a planetary problem that the kind of mismanagement, um, abuse, and, and abandonment of agricultural lands uh, you know, is a part of the problem, and that bringing that land back into uh, a proper management is is a major part of the solution. So, linking that kind of personal problem of like, how do I get my hands on some land with the, you know, global imperative that we start stewarding this land in a way that holds carbon in the soil and um, builds soil and you know, reforest areas that really need to be in forest. That it kind of it kind of gave me a big kick in the butt, and and. Having that like holistic view of of our jobs as young stewards and of young agents of change to really to really take it by the horns and um, you know make it happen for ourselves. Let's talk also. I mean that that big view and that big vision of um, for you this kind of repairing degraded land. That mm-hmm. I I would. I would assume that that's useful um, to have that long-term vision in mind when you're kind of going from job to job and there's a certain amount of uncertainty over the winters as you're trying to navigate that next, um, that next um, job in farming. Could you maybe commentate a little bit about, um, you know, patching together your agricultural skill set um, from year to year and, and the kind of ebb and flow of, of, of being, you know, essentially a landless learner? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, um, I definitely landless learner. That's a good way to put it. Um, I'm hoping that I can somehow. Um, I mean, I have a lot of experience with you know the beef end of things because I work for that um, the ranchers in the San Luis Valley. Um, you know, and I'm really hoping that um, you know in the East Coast where. It, in some senses, it's easier because you don't have the fight with water that you have in the West, although you have a fight with maybe mud and um, flood or whatever that you have in the East. But um, I'm really hoping that maybe I can work for someone to help them, um, you know, maybe use holistic management, which I think is an amazing tool, um, you know, to improve their land and make their land more productive, you know, so they can make more money, so they can grow more grass, so they can, you know, sequester more carbon and, um, and you know, make more milk potentially. Um, and so I'm hoping that that's sort of my avenue um, to sort of, you know, like reenter the East is, you know, in that sort of capacity. Um, and, you well, know... Well, and Amber, another point is, you know, in the East Coast, we had historically so many dairy farms. Right. And in uh, this last year, 2009, 
um, New England lost 10% of its dairy farms in one year. And so, like, around here, I'm in the Hudson Valley, and uh, in Columbia County, I, I, we um, just learned that there's um, 50 dairy farms for sale right now. Um, and yeah. all that pasture is just, you know, what it wants is it wants to be beef, and it wants to be pastured poultry. And you right. have the sure to do that. Yeah. I mean, and the the thing that kills me is that I just heard a statistic recently that basically, even this is just on the conventional end of things, which I'm not interested in really, but I heard that it costs about $17 to produce 100, you know, 100 weight of milk, and that, um, so it costs $17, and that they were paying um, $10.04 or something in 2009, and that's basically what put all those people out of business. Um, yeah. I know the town I grew up in Wellington, which has got like 350 people at Central Maine. Um, we have still um, three dairies in that town of 300 people, which is amazing. Um, but there used to be like 10. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not a happy situation. I just got an email. I'm on the Young Dairy Farmer listserv, and you know Cargill is sponsoring a you know Young Dairy Manager holiday party with eggnog and. And, you know, it's frustrating when the kind of organizing that's happening there for the young dairy farmers is being organized by the, you know, the input salesman, the guy who wants to sell them the mixture of, you know, feed concentrates. And it it frustrates right. me because I love milk and I think that, um, you know, our dairy industry deserves to survive, um, but I, I worry that, I worry that, you know, listen... Listening too much to the to the salesman is not going to, um, you know, spell survival necessarily for the farmers. And I just don't know who would go into a business where you're losing, you know, four or five dollars a gallon. I mean, a hundredweight. I know, right? It's I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Well, you know, what's funny is I was um, I was reading the other day um, just like a little bit of you know stuff about milking routines from this. New Zealand soil guy, which seems like kind of a strange combination, but he was saying how few dairy farmers um, actually have seen other dairy farmers' milk. And I was thinking, like, <laughs> I mean, um, you know, part of the problem, too, is with, you know, a lot of dairies, and I think part of the reason they've gone under is because um, they haven't helped each other maybe enough. And, um, and, and certain things have, you know, gotten out of control, like machinery use and I, um, you know, and obviously, you know, Colorado is, you know, the place where I was working before. I mean, they're really lucky. I mean, they get a lot of snow, but it's also sunny all the time, and they don't have to worry about plugging their fields up or, you know, basically having, like, a huge muddy mess. Um, And that's something that in New England is, you know, a huge deal, and people have to spend a lot of time and energy figuring out. But... You know, I also noticed that it's like a lot of dairy farmers haven't gone. I'm, I feel so lucky. I've gone to go see all these different people and seen, and everyone does everything so differently, but they haven't gone to see each other. And uh, I think that is a real big plus for um, people our age who are apprentices, and we get to see a lot of different people and how they do things, and it, it gives you some really great ideas. So it's worth this. It's worth all the driving around, and it's worth the insecurity to spend that to spend that period of learning, the landless learning time, to spend it really aggressively seeking out knowledge and making relationships and connections and examining what everyone's doing? Is that what? <laughs> yeah. 
Well, and it's just, I think, you know, it, it, it saves, you know, a lot of, I mean, not that, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to make, I'm, I'll make a million mistakes, I'm sure, and so will everyone else who's a young farmer or an apprentice out there, but I do think that um, we'll save a lot of, a lot of that um, just by having a chance to really see what all the different people are, you know, up to, and um, their, their obvious successes and failures, you know. It's, it's pretty amazing, and especially, I mean, they have great stories about, things that they would never do again or that they would. Um, but I wish there was more dairies out here. You know, the West really needs, you know, it's funny because, you know, in the East Coast, even though there's hardly any dairies compared to what there used to be, out here there's like 10 in like, you know, 100,000 miles it seems like. I mean, obviously it's not that bad. But but then there's these giant dairies like Aurora Dairy, which, of course, has a terrible reputation, which it deserves. Um. But, you know, it's like there's, in the West, there's like a few tiny dairies, and then there's these mega dairies um, that are, you know, most of the time really abusing their animals and not making a very good product. And it gives everybody, it gives everybody a bad impression of what, of what farming is when, when farming is yucky. I know. <laughs> yeah, um, well, tell my family that. They're all, they all think I'm totally crazy to want to be a dairy farmer. Everyone always says something about the smell, which, you know, of course, that happens sometimes, but mostly as a result of um, poor management, it seems like. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's the core thing that when Larry's always talking about, you know, that industrial dairy essentially makes two problems out of a really great solution by dividing the pasture and the manure lagoon um, or yep. while removing the pasture. Right, totally. <laughs> Well, let's talk about, let's talk about, okay, so you're a dairy girl, and um, you're, you started out in cows, or you started out with the goats in France, and then you moved into beef cattle, and then you worked mm-hmm. in small-scale dairy. Now you're looking for another dairy gig or another, like, dairy cheese-type gig. Mm-hmm. Where, what exactly would be your, like, dream farm? Well, um, I guess my, my dream farm would be... Um, I don't know, um, a little bit north of Portland, Maine, you know, kind of close to Portland because it seems like a mecca of people who love good food and are interested in it. And, um, and willing and to pay. I would love to. What? <laughs> and willing to pay for it. And willing to pay for it. That's part of it, too, absolutely. Um, and I'd love to have, like, 25 cows and, you know, maybe um, 30 or 40 um hogs, um, you know, I can feed them the whey or the skim milk or whatever. Um, and I like to do laying chickens and, and, um, and that's probably it. You know, I mean, I'm really interested in the vegetable side of things, but I also, I've seen, um, people spread themselves really thin and I'd rather kind of stick to a few things. I mean, that's already so much, um, you know, 25 dairy cows and, and all those pigs and, and chickens that, um, you know, that's already quite a lot of work, I, I, I realize, that um, sort of adding in the whole mix. But I'd love to have a partnership. You know, I'd love to work with a brewery um, where we could, you know, do some beer, cheese-type things, you know, washing um, cheeses with beer or, you know, maybe people who had bees and, you know, do some um, cheese-honey-type things or whatever, you know, feeding all those byproducts, all those, you know, the skim milk, the spent brewer's grain to the pigs, um, Having someone who who made, you know, I like to have partnerships with people. Like I don't necessarily want to do every 
every part of it myself, but I love to be part of a community where there was a baker, there was a, and then there was someone who was making, you know, the best prosciutto ever, whatever. Um, and don't forget the candlestick maker. The candlestick maker, exactly. <laughs> I look forward oh. to that. I mean, well, I was just up at Essex Farm, and they started making uh, soap from their from their beef tallow. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. Oh, man, it's so good. And then they were like, oh, well, why don't we make it with lard, too? And so they made, like, pork soap. I like I like the beef soap better, I have to say. <laughs> you do. Well, yeah, I can uh, I can imagine. I tried to make a apple pie last summer with beef tallow, and I think beef tallow is probably great for um, savory pie, but I didn't think it was so hot for the for the apple pie. <laughs> oh, so there you go. So save your tallow for your soap and save your lard for your pie. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But, I mean, it's my, you know, and I'd love to, you know, have some of my family involved and, um, I don't know, but, you know, I, I just, I'd like to be part of a community that was really, you know, serious about this stuff. And, and um, I'd love to have some time in the winter, like, do the seasonal thing, hopefully. I don't know if it's possible because I know a lot of people can't afford to do it, and I don't know if I will be able to either, but take the winter off and um, and maybe do some, you know, some environmental-type work with, um, you know, using cows, you know, beef cows as a tool to improve land. I mean... I just think there's a lot of possibilities there, and I'm really excited by the um, by that conference that we went to, and and um, you know how much hope there is for you know fighting climate change with you know animals as a tool, and um, and I, I'd like to be able to have some time to do that kind of stuff, and you know winter seems like pretty much the only time, so. Um, so anyway, that's Amber, my sort of dream farm idea. Want to hang out with you more? <laughs> <laughs> Come eat. If anybody out there is listening and knows about any cheese jobs, I think Amber's looking around. Would you I'm be willing looking, to work right. in Vermont, Amber? Um, sure. You know, I'm the East Coast. I, I'd really like to be, you know, within a few states of my family, so in Maine. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, Vermont and, and New Hampshire and Maine, and, I mean, there's beautiful places in all those states. And don't forget New York. And New York. And New York. <laughs> And um, Pennsylvania, okay. too. <laughs> well, um, so let, will you just briefly, before we close, uh, remind everybody about the Kivera Apprenticeship so that they know um, about your good experience and how to access that information? Yeah. Um, well, the Kivera Coalition, um, just a, sort of like a two-minute history, um, Kivera Coalition is all about the radical center. So, like, um, how environmentalists and ranchers can come together because obviously um, there's been a lot of um, ostracism and fighting between those two groups, and so that's that's Kavira's like mission is to um, you know bring those two, two groups together and to move forward and make progress you know with this kind of stuff. Um, and they're all involved with you know holistic management, and um, which is you know from the originally you know from Alan Savory out of um, the Savory Institute, and um, and they've had these these apprenticeships that basically they've um, paid apprentices um, enough so that you can actually get by, and I think it's a pretty good deal. And um, and then they've hooked them up with these amazing ranchers, um, and it could be anywhere from Arizona to New Mexico or Colorado. So these are Western apprenticeships, um, and usually it's 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 ranches. Usually it's it's beef. Um, so, anyways, and you can just go on online. You know, Kavira Coalition. And um, and 
Avery Anderson is the one who basically sets up these apprenticeships, and she's the one who, if you're interested in applying to, would be dealing with the application process and um, and looking, you know, through kind of trying to make the best match between the farm and the apprentice because there's some different sort of choices out there. And I just think that it's an incredible it's an incredible community. Like if you when you go to this Kavira conference, it's I mean literally, I mean just a huge spread of people, I mean, old and young, you know, people who are just getting started, people who have been doing this for, like, literally 70 years, and um, people who are um, vegetarians who are interested in in animal husbandry to people who have, you know, grew up ranching, and um, I just think it's really exciting because I feel like they have made a lot of progress, and they've really kind of met their goals, and, um, and that they're still working on it, and... So and there's also well, and they some, have um, totally they've totally committed to the youth and to um, you know thinking through the the issues facing the new agrarians and you know figuring out which which kinds of relationships and what kind of system thinking we'll need in order to you know succeed at our our various interlocking jobs. I'm I'm super yeah. impressed with them. Another one just to bring up briefly is um, the Colorado Ranching Legacy Program. That's run by uh-huh. the, in part by the Nature Conservancy in Colorado State, and that's another um, ranching apprenticeship uh, program. You know, obviously, getting a, you know getting into farming is challenging, which is why you know we started Greenhorns was to support young farmers because we knew that it was a challenge. And if you don't have a social network um, within the ranching community, it can be kind of a challenge to um, find yourself a beginning in beef, cattle, or yeah. Um, and, and so these kinds of programs will be a very good introduction if that's where you're kind of thinking you might want to be um, to step into that field. And, um, any last, and also any one last more words, Amber? Um, just that there is going to be a young agrarian conference. Um, the Kavira is setting up in New Mexico next um, November, and I'm hoping to be there. And um, I think it would be a great opportunity for anyone who's interested in this stuff. Um, I'm going to be there, but, too. Good. <laughs> well, so I, I can't excited. wait to see you again, Severin. <laughs> I can't wait to see you again. I hope it's before then. I hope it's in the spring in Maine, or if anybody is, or if you're around in Maine, um, we're having a midsummer grange mixer uh, in Essex, New York. So that could be fun. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much, Amber, for coming on the radio, and thank you to all the listeners for listening and for. Um, plugging away, whatever you're plugging away at, if you're listening on your uh, iPod. Um, I, a lot of people come up to me at conferences now and are like, I listen to your radio show on my iPod while I'm in the greenhouse. And um, I listen to other radio on my iPod, too. And there's so much cleaning to be done and so much preparation for spring to be done. It's nice to have um, company. And the company of all the young farmers is, I find, really what keeps me um, motivated when there's so much to do and um, a long road ahead. So may the force be with you all, and thank you for listening. And please do check in with our calendar online on the Greenhorns blog because there's a lot of mixers coming up with winter conference time, and we've just got stuff going on in New Hampshire and Vermont and in New York and um, California and Oregon and uh West Virginia, all sorts of places. So check it out on the schedule online. And if you want to schedule a screening, we have a nice um, little form you can fill out on the, on the website now. So 
things are moving along, and thank you all. Bye-bye. Bye.